Let's turn to Jonah and chapters 3 and 4, and I want to just spend a short while reflecting on what happens in these chapters, but particularly from the last verse, which says, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? The 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, there's argument about uh, what that is. Nineveh, of course, was the great city in the world, really, of Jonah's day. And some people think the 120,000 refers to children in the city, that there's 120,000 children um, who (coughs) are not yet at a stage where they can tell their right from their left. The reason some people say that is because it was a city that required three days' visit. That's what verse 3 of chapter 3 says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. But that's not really about size. That's about importance. If you were to go and visit, the first day would be a state visit by the ambassador. Second day, you would conduct business. And the third day, you would have an official send-off. You couldn't just go for the day if you were going officially like uh, Jonah had been asked to do. So, I think the 120,000 people refers basically to the population of Nineveh who are ignorant, not of their right hand and left, but they're ignorant of God, who God is, what God requires, what the God of the Bible wants. And The reason I want to reflect on that is I want to reflect on our own city where there are at least 120,000 people who are ignorant of God, uh, as ignorant as the Ninevites were. It may even be that I'm being generous in thinking that there are 30,000 people who have some idea, but uh, I want us to reflect upon that and just to think about it and to pray about it and to realize why we are here. Now, one of the reasons I'm I'm going to do this, I I was planning to do something completely different, but yesterday I got on the bus, and I'm sitting on the bus, minding my own business, uh, actually catching up on Facebook uh, on on the iPhone, and there's a man sitting in front of me with a black lab, very friendly, nice dog, and at one stop, he just had a look of panic, and I, I I saw his look, and I looked up, and there was a man, another man coming on the bus with two, what I would just call attack dogs, just, you know, the kind of dogs that two of them leashed together, and as soon as they got on, they went for the other dog, and they they nearly ripped its throat out. The bus stopped. The bus driver had to come. People were furious. There was all kinds of language and so on, and uh, the bus driver said, no, off, off. He says, you can't come on my bus with dogs like that. And the, the other man got off and he looked quite offended. And I thought, why? What, what are you doing with, with dogs that are bred and designed to attack? And I listened to the conversation of people there. And I, and I just thought, people have got such sad faces. They've got such worn faces. Uh, I, later that day, I met a man who... Uh, his face, I don't know how old he was, you couldn't tell. His face was just absolutely wrecked with 
years, obviously, of, of hard drinking. It was just red and bulbous and just, just such a sad, sad face. And then uh, we're in the, as I said this morning, we're in the massive Curry's Stroke PC world, which in, should be a kind of dream place for me because it's full of computers and all kinds of wonderful things. And yeah, I felt really, really depressed in that place because it strikes me that if you go into that place in 10 years' time, it's probably going to be, you know, television screens as big as your living room. Because before, if you had a television screen, it was 20 inch. That was massive. But now it's got to be 42 inch, or you're nobody. 44 inch, flat screen, um, with all the, the surround sound system and everything else that goes with it. And again, I was just observing people, watching people in the place and thinking, is this it? Is this really it? You know, it, it, it's ironic that, for me anyway, that as our televisions have got bigger and better, that what's on them has got worse. And that, you just think, why? Why, why would you want a screen in your room that's 44 inches to watch? I mean, there's good, I know there's good stuff on television. I'm not intending this to be a rant or anything like that, but I just thought, that's what life is for people. And I thought just about the people who are ignorant and people who just don't know. And I, I, as you know, some of you know, Andrew's working at a teen ranch, and he told me a, a, he's had a, a good week, the first week of camp. They've had uh, a number of children who've come from a very deprived background in Glasgow. And by that, deprived, what you basically mean is that um, they don't talk about their mother or their father. They talk about their carer because they come from very, very disruptive backgrounds. Andrew was saying to the boys, when he was talking to the boys, that um, they had no problem in accepting sin. They knew what sin was. One of the boys even said, we're all sinners here. He says, we've done some really bad things. But what got me was uh, one of the boys, who is the biggest boy in the, in, in the group, and Andrew was saying he was trying to talk and teach them something, and a smaller boy said, oh, I don't believe in God, and it's all rubbish, and so on. And before Andrew could say anything, the biggest boy got up, stood up, and said, what are you on? You shut your pass. Sorry, that was, but, you know, just very, I just, what do you think happens to us when we die? There's heaven, and there's hell, and Andy, they called him Andy Man. They said, Andy Man here is trying to tell you about God. Now, shut up and listen. I thought, that's, that's a great combination in terms of evangelist. I just thought it was a, a uh, a wonderful picture in one sense. But I thought, that kid's got it right. How are these kids going to hear? And it was tied in. I'm reading this book at the moment, uh, which uh, it's not written by a Christian, but it's very, very perceptive. He's describing how we've given up on, well, we're giving up on at least 1,500 years of Christianity, and our society is getting deeper and deeper in trouble. And I just wanted to quote this to you. The well from which we uh, have gone on drawing our morals and our myths has finally run dry. Millions of children in the new generation, those born at the turn of the 21st century, will grow up ignorant not merely of the basic Christian doctrines, but of the Christian stories and parables which illustrate and enliven those doctrines. And for some of you, this is difficult to grasp, but even if, if you grew up 
in the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, even the 1980s, it was still presupposed that in schools and elsewhere, you would have a basic education about what Christianity, you might not believe Christianity, you might reject Christianity, but people would know. But now, even that is gone. And uh, this man, Ferdinand Mount, says this, we must note here an embarrassing, even shameful distinction. To put it bluntly, it's the poor who have been most brutally cut off from their religious heritage. The minority of children who attend fee-paying schools or church schools in nice areas are still taught the rudiments of the Christian faith. They grow up with some understanding of the spiritual history of their own country. But for the vast majority of children in poorer British families, many of whom would in a former generation have attended Sunday school or their local church, religion of any sort is a closed book. There is a new inequality of ignorance creeping in across Europe. And they talk about how in days gone by in the 19th century and in most of the 20th century that uh, if you were poor and working class, you would still know and hear the Christian story. But now he says, paganism is most thoroughly entrenched amongst the industrial working class for their teachers in state primary and and state primary and comprehensive schools are on average the teachers most opposed to religion in any shape and the keenest to stamp out the last vestiges of religious myth and song from the school curriculum. There is a deeper repugnance at work here. The only subject specifically prescribed in the 1994 Education Act is religious education. Yet a largely post-Christian teaching profession is unwilling to play any active part in propagating the Christian tradition. The kindly tolerance once extended by agnostics towards Christians and their myths and rituals has given way to a harsher intolerance and impatience. And he says, basically, Christianity uh, is being excommunicated out of modern society. Now, I know that there are many, many exceptions to that rule. I know there are many fine Christian teachers, and I know that there are many teachers who are not Christians who still think that Christianity should be taught in some form or other. But the overall situation there is actually true. The vast majority of children are growing up without any knowledge whatsoever of Christianity. In fact, we're getting into second and third generation people who in a spiritual sense cannot tell their right hand from their left. And I'm sorry for the the lengthy quotes from Ferdinand Mount's books, but I think that that should really, really burden us. How are they going to hear? How are they going to hear unless someone tells them? It's not just in camps. It's uh, across the board. How are they going to hear? And that has everything to do with social justice and poverty and so on as well. Because if you're a kid being brought up in this city and you're being taught about, you have the view of, that our culture has of, of sex, for example, and sexual promiscuity. So what if you think you've got five dads? So what if you don't have the support and the background of a, a loving family? And I think particularly I want to argue in a Christian context. One of uh, Andrew's boys said to him, 
I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to the scheme. I'd like to stay here. They can't stay in Teen Ranch forever. But it is something, it's something that makes me personally just really, really angry that people muck around with morality and nice ideas, but they don't take responsibility for the harm that that does, especially amongst the poorest. And that's where we come in in this story of Jonah, because you would think, all right, that's true of Nineveh. There's a city with 120,000 people who can't tell their right from their left, people who don't know about God. Jonah is told by God, go and tell them. You would think that he would be pleased about that. But what you've got is a story of a man who bitterly resents the fact that God cares for and loves evil people. Jonah's name just means dove, and yet uh, <coughs> we find that, and he was, uh, came from a well-off family and a well-established family. If you read 2 Kings 14, 23, it says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he'd caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hephar. Now, you know the story of Jonah. You know how Jonah was asked to go, how he refused to go, how he ran on a ship and basically headed for Spain. Um, managed to mention Spain. I'll mention Holland at some point. But he headed for Spain, and as he headed for Spain, uh, of course, there was the storm. He was swallowed by the giant fish, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land, and the second time he's told to go to the city. Now, you'd think he would get his message. He goes, and he teaches. The king of Nineveh, when he hears Jonah's message, he rises from his throne, takes off his royal robes, covers himself with sackcloth, and sits down in the dust. Now, the equivalent of that would be if I, um, or anybody, any Christian teacher, went to our council and said, listen, we've got really something to tell you, that this city has turned away from God, that we're under the judgment of God, and then the next day you read in the courier, council leader says we all need to repent, and is calling a citywide day of prayer. You just, that would be absolutely astounding. You just do not expect that. Jonah certainly didn't expect it. And uh, Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, issued a proclamation uh, ordering everyone, including the animals, to fast, to wear sackcloth, and to, to pray that God would have mercy on them. And, and that's what happened, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. Now, at that point, you think Jonah has got to be jumping for joy, but he's not. Verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, and this is one of the most astonishing prayers in the whole Bible. It's so bad, in one sense, it's almost humorous. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? 
That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, I didn't want to go because I knew you'd probably save them anyway. I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God, and you've, you've made me go through all this to bring a message which is not true. You're not going to destroy them. Take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. It is the ultimate temper tantrum that you get, and it's from this prophet, and it's a temper tantrum at God. I think that uh, Jonah wants to die because the things that were important to him were going wrong. Because for Jonah, he'd, I think he lost sight of God. He wanted the death of his enemies. He almost, you can imagine him preaching in Nineveh, being absolutely delighted that he could announce 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Jonah was angry at that. Then verse 9, there's the amazing story of the vine, how he gets angry again. God asks him, do you have a right to be angry? Jonah goes out. He doesn't answer God's question. He sits in a place to the east of the city. He makes himself a shelter, waits to see what would happen. God provides a vine, makes it grow to give him shade from the heat, to ease his discomfort. Jonah's extremely happy now about the vine. I mean, he's a moody guy. He, he, he's furious that God's not going to destroy Nineveh. And then he's happy that there's this vine with this tremendous shade. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Second time he said that. God second time asked him, do you have a right to be angry? But this time specifically, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. You contrast the relative value of plants and people. Jonah was unhappy that the people were not going to die, and he was unhappy that the plant did die. There is really distorted values here. Jonah had thanked God for saving him from death, and now he's telling God, I wish you'd let me die. I think we can find ourselves in a position where we can accept grace and forgiveness for ourselves and forget to love our enemies. I think we have to think about what makes us angry. Maybe some of you are people who never ever get angry. Um, you don't get angry in the sense of shouting at people or yelling at people but you get angry in the sense of being upset or being hurt or being wounded. What upsets you? What upsets me? We look at Jonah, and frankly, it appears completely ridiculous. How can Jonah be angry at God working, even through the message that Jonah preached? How can Jonah be angry at the vine withering? Well, I think if we ask that, we probably don't know ourselves as well as we thought. We 
Two, get very, very angry when things do not work out in the way that we expect. Jonah was incredibly self-centered. And if we are honest, then most of us are, are, going to be, are going to say, and I'm certainly going to say, that I'm very self-centered, and therefore my anger tends to focus around things that are to do with myself and what I want. But that, that clearly is wrong. What motivates us? What inspires us? What gives us passion? You take the things that, that would really wind you up, the things that really, really annoy you. Does it, does it bother you? Does it anger you? What, what's going on in this city? Um, it's the time of year when our next-door neighbors, they belong to a particular Islamic cult, they're beginning their festival. Uh, no disrespect to our neighbors, but I'm so glad that we're going away tomorrow because it's like three, four days of, of chanting and um, singing, which sounds, by the way, remarkably like Gaelic psalm singing, but it's not. Um, and... Um, you know, festivities, you, 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 I don't think I begrudge them at all, the festivities. But I do remember the time when Annabelle was looking out the window and there were, what, 40 men all bowing down on a carpet, bowing to, towards Mecca. I just thought, this is just so desperately, desperately sad. It's desperately sad because I think the Bible teaches very, very clearly that religion without Christ is idolatry and leads away from God. And I have to, I have to, you have to love your Muslim neighbors, and we literally have Muslim neighbors. I think how, because you love them, you want them to be rescued from the dominion, and it is a dominion, a dark dominion of Islam. That's one aspect, but as I said, another aspect is just simply the people who are growing up in, and especially, I think for me, especially the young people, but, but the older people as well, who are growing up in a very confused, very messed up, very mixed up society. What do I get angry about? I get angry, well, just think about the stuff that gets us angry. You get angry, you're driving the car and someone cuts you up in the car get angry about that. You may get angry that someone in the church, you may be angry at someone in the church because they say something or do something, which in the grand scheme of things is really trivial, but it's like the worm eating the vine. It still gets to you. It manages to get to you in a way that 120,000 people perishing wouldn't get to you. I think that we do have to be very careful. This morning we were looking at the nature of God and how it's the nature of God to love. Well, Jonah is really protesting against the nature of God. Exodus 34 says this, verse 6, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. 
Psalm 86, verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God asked Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Just take that question and apply that question to yourself. What is it that's winding you up? What is it that's really upsetting you just now? Do you have a right to be angry? On the other hand, God asked Jonah, do I not have a right to be concerned about that great city? And surely he asked us as well, if you are my people, do you not have the responsibility to share that concern? We can have various reactions as Christians. One, I think, is the head-in-the-sand approach, which says, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. We're just not going to be aware of it. It's, it kind of, in an evangelical sense, sometimes it, it means that we shut ourselves away, immune from everything that's going on around us. We know it's out there, but that's the point. It is out there. It's not part of our lives. But God doesn't really give us that option. He doesn't allow us to say, you can cut yourself off from the world. We're not of the world, but of course we are in the world, as Jesus said. But I think another option that some of us have is that we live in the world, but we, we do despair at what we see, and we're almost like Jonah. We're almost delighting. Society is going to ruin. You read something in the paper, and we go, yep, see, we told you that. That's exactly what happens. And sometimes you see bad things happening to people, and there's almost a, there can almost be a sense when you say, well, that's what happens, and so people deserve it. But that's not to be our attitude, and it's not the attitude of Jesus Christ, who as He looked at Jerusalem, He saw that Jerusalem would kill Him, and He saw that Jerusalem would turn against Christians, and He saw that Jerusalem would persecute His people, and He wept. He wept because He said, I, I, I wanted to gather you, I wanted you, but you wouldn't come. And I do, I'm, I'm not, I hope I'm not over-dramatizing it, I do envisage Christ looking upon this city and the towns and the villages around and seeing far more of the ugliness than we see, far more of the brokenness and the broken homes and the broken hearts and the broken and bruised body, whether it's the guy who is, you know, standing in the street, face absolutely ruined by, by years of hard drinking, or whether it's the child growing up in a home where he doesn't know. No, he doesn't know about God. He doesn't know about the love of God in any sense whatsoever. And the concept of God as Father would be horrific to him because his own father has, has been awful. I think about the people who grow up in religious homes, whether Christian or Muslim or whatever, but again, they don't really know and they don't really grasp and they don't really get the gospel. And I, I, I think that the Lord would look and say, would weep over this city. And we have to reflect that, not in the sense of despair, because that's what the gospel is for. That's what we're here for. And God can and does change people's lives. I just wonder if we are people who almost resent God's compassion 
or we reserve our passion for things that are relatively trivial. The um, Let me again just ask that you and I pray that we would have the, the spirit of Jesus Christ and not actually the spirit of Jonah. And that we would see a day come in our own city and in our own nation when people see what is done and turn from our evil ways and that God would have compassion on us. In the Second World War, as some of you will know, Winston Churchill called several times on the nation to have a day of prayer and fasting, asking God to have mercy upon the nation. I doubt we have a single politician who would dare to do that today, such as the antagonism towards Christianity. We need to pray that the Lord would have mercy upon us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the story of Jonah. We don't like so much of what we read in it. A man who resents your compassion. A man who's so obsessed with himself that he would rather his enemies were dead than you were glorified through the salvation of sinners. A man who is so self-preoccupied that he is not just angry at the salvation of a city, but is furious at the destruction of a plant. Lord, we confess that we too can so often have distorted values where we are passionate about things that don't really matter and where we are cool, cold, stoical about what really matters. We pray for the city. We pray for the 30,000 children who are growing up, vast majority, without any knowledge of you or any real opportunity to know you. Pray for Gavin Barry and Scripture Union, for Bruce White of The Attic, for the work of Hot Chocolate Trust in the center of town, for Teen Ranch, for Discovery Camps, for the teachers in schools, for the parents in homes who seek to remedy that in some way or other. And we ask that this salt and this light would grow and would increase. We pray for the churches, and especially we would pray for our own church here, that you would help us to have a, a passion and a compassion. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would not be those who sit in judgment with a, an almost told-you-so attitude to those who are suffering because of the consequences of theirs and other people's sin. But instead, we pray that we would be the ones who come and offer the starving the bread of life, the thirsty the water of life. Lord, we bless you that we have this great gospel. We bless you that we can sing of your great love we bless you that in the midst of the storm, we can know your hand. And we bless you that you have called each of us to the places we live and the places we work, 
that though it is in you that we live and move and have our being, yet you have appointed the days and the times and the places for each one of us so that people would reach out for you and would find you. Lord, we ask that you would use us in that, for we ask it in your name. Amen.